Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK and today quite literally from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK because I'm out for a walk along a country lane with birds singing in the trees, you can probably hear and the beautiful blue sky above me and sunshine and a gentle breeze which I hope is going to remain gentle so that you can hear what I'm actually saying and the reason why is because I'm trying to get away from a house that is in the last throes of a stomach bug which unfortunately has damaged my plans for this week. I had hoped to be speaking this week to Vanessa Beely, the independent journalist and investigative reporter who, as many of you know, has made several trips over the last few years to Syria to find out what's really going on in that country. I have wanted to speak to her for a couple of years, so it's really great that she agreed to come on, but just at that time when we were supposed to be speaking, I got struck down with this stomach bug, so I was forced to postpone the interview, which was a great frustration. However, very kindly, she has agreed to come on next week, so I'm very grateful to her, and we still have that to look forward to. However, I am therefore going to have to do something different this week, and I'll explain what that is in a few minutes. Oh, and here's a car coming. <laughs> so I'm going to have to stand by the side of these stinging nettles here while the car goes past, trying to keep as still as I can. There we are. Yes, this stomach bug is a great frustration. First of all, my daughter brought it into the house, having been to a music festival, the kind of place where you're likely to pick up a, mus uh, a music bug, <laughs> a, uh, a stomach bug, and she passed it on then to our toddler, who got over it pretty quickly, actually, as toddlers tend to do. And then, because we're living in close proximity to my mum and dad, my mum came down with it, which meant, that, of course, we were involved in looking after my dad a lot, and then my wife came down with it, and I thought, well, I wasn't going to come down with it because I was using all this these hand gels and antibacterial creams and things like that, washing my hands religiously, but then I came down with it. And then, unfortunately, also my dad came down with it, but he got over it pretty quickly. Anyway, the house has been full of it, so this is why I'm, I'm out here walking in the fresh air. And uh, as I say, I've got to change my plans for this week, but I will explain about that in a few minutes. I'm going to you know, do one of my sharing something of interest programs. But before I get to that, let me just give you an idea of some of the things that are going to be on, or hopefully going to be on, The Mind Renewed over the next weeks and months, because I've been very busy in asking people onto the show, and we've got uh, quite a rundown of things. So, as I say, next week we're going to be joined, I said we're going to be joined, all being well, we're going to be joined by Vanessa Beely. Um, and then I'm hoping we're going to be joined by John Booth, who is the Yorkshire-born journalist and photographer who and uh, activist who joined us back in 2016 to talk about his excellent article that he wrote on 9-11. Uh, this time we're going to be having not an interview so much as a conversation, uh, a concerned conversation about an issue that he's been interested in for a long time, the very suspicious, highly suspicious death of Dr. David Kelly. Then we will be joined by Dr. Krish Kandaya, the former head of the London School of Theology, who joined us also back in 2016 to talk about his book, Paradoxology. He's written a new book now called Faith Theism, which is going to be published, I think, in July. Um, I don't actually have a copy of it yet. Hodder and Stoughton are going to send me a copy very soon, but judging by its description, it sounds very interesting. Faith Theism, a portmanteau word, obviously, coming from faith 
and atheism mixed together there. It does sound interesting, so I'm looking forward to having a chat to Dr. Krish Kandaya about that book. Then we're going to be speaking to Peter Ford, the former UK ambassador to Bahrain and Syria. And I'll be asking him his views on the UK mainstream media and its increasingly propagandistic role as a mouthpiece for the state. And I'll also be asking him about the recent media on trial event that took place in Leeds, which, of course, Vanessa Billy also presented at. Then we'll be speaking to Greg Coles, who is the author of a very thought-provoking and challenging book called Single Gay Christian, published by Intervarsity Press. Um, A controversial book, but really worth reading. Thereafter, we'll be speaking again to Professor Edgar Andrews, who came on very early in the life of this podcast to talk about his book, Who Made God? Um, He's written a new book, which is called uh, What is Man? I'm about two-thirds way through that book at the moment. I don't agree with everything that he says, actually, but there's a great deal in there that is very interesting. So it will be great to have another chat with him after all these years. That's Professor Edgar Andrews. Hopefully, we'll still be having a chat at some point with Andy Tidd of Like Flint Radio, who has agreed to come on and talk about the situation in the political situation in Zimbabwe and the rather strange case of the former first lady of that country. So that'll be interesting when we eventually get round to that conversation. We'll also be talking again to our good friend Anthony Rotuno and possibly also to Josh Wisely again about a subject, again, that I'm not going to reveal because I'm not quite sure about it yet, but it's certainly interesting intriguing and we'll see what happens about that. Um, Now another one that's possibly going to take place is a conversation with Professor Richard Swinburne. Many of you will be familiar with that name. He is a retired world famous Christian philosopher and he has expressed interest in coming on the show to talk about his argument for the existence of God. He wrote a book about that which I have on my shelf. Hopefully we're going to be able to tease that through in a conversation maybe towards the end of September. Um, It all depends on whether he's got time to fit us in, because even though he's retired, he is extremely busy. So no promises there, but I thought I'd let you know, because that is a possibility for the future. Okay, so as you can see, quite a few things coming up over the next few weeks, across the summer and into the autumn. As to what's happening today, I'm going to share something of interest because of the stomach bug situation a recording of a talk by Dr. William Lane Craig. Back in 2011, my wife and I were very privileged to go on one of these guided tours of Israel. And we were very fortunate to go with Reasonable Faith, which is headed up by William Lane Craig. And so we were in the great position of not only being able to see a lot of these biblical sites and have some wonderful tour guides, very knowledgeable people guide us through that experience, but we also were able to hear Dr. Craig give his reflections at the end of many of those days. Uh, When we got back to the hotel, he would give a talk. And uh, it was really interesting to hear what he had to say, because he would reflect personally on those events of the day, drawing upon his biblical knowledge and also his knowledge of 
the writings of other ancient historians. And what he would essentially be doing is looking at some of the characters associated with the places that we'd visited, seeing what the New Testament writers said about them, and then seeing what uh, other ancient writers said about them, and, and, and comparing and contrasting. And uh, really, as he says in the presentation, to remind us that Christianity is historically rooted. There are differences between the way the, the biblical writers write about these people and, and the way others write about these people. That is to be expected. Everybody's going to see things from their own perspective, but there's a considerable overlap, and it does remind us of the rootedness of Christianity in the actual events of history. Um, this is exclusive. Uh, he gave me permission to uh, record this and to put this online. I've never done so until today, but as far as I know, nobody else recorded it. It's not out there. So yes, this is an exclusive, but I'm not suggesting by that this is anything earth shattering. It's not. It's just his reflections on the events of those days, but I think they're worth listening to and I think they're enjoyable. And you can also pick up a sense of his own enthusiasm about the tour that we were on and the things that we were experiencing. So it's uh, quite nice just from that point of view as well. So I hope you enjoy this. This was Dr. Cray giving his reflections at the end of the day when we'd been to Caesarea Maritima, which is a place that contains within it the ancient city of Caesarea associated, of course, with Herod the Great, um, whose project it was. And uh, this is what Dr. Craig had to say, and I hope you enjoy it. One of the great things about visiting Israel is the way it cements into your mind the fact that the Christian faith is a historical religion. I think to the uninitiated, Reading the Gospels is sort of like reading ancient mythology or Aesop's fables. Uh, they think that these are about fantastic lands and imaginary people that lived long, long ago in a land far, far away. And you know how the rest of the fantasy goes. But when you're on a trip like this, you see that this isn't about some sort of fantasy land. This is about real historical people that actually lived and wrought, about real places that you can go visit today, about real events that actually happened in history. And I'd like to just highlight tonight uh, a little bit more of, about some of the places that we saw today that I think are especially significant for understanding the New Testament and then for more deeply appreciating Christian church history. Now, after seeing Caesarea Maritima today, I hope you have begun to appreciate why Herod was called great. Herod was probably the greatest builder of the ancient world. Not only did he build Caesarea Maritima with its fantastic harbor, uh, its lighthouse, uh, its beautiful palace and, and, and swimming pool, hippodrome, but he also built the second temple in Jerusalem, the mount of which we'll see when we visit Jerusalem. The first temple, the Solomonic temple, was destroyed uh, in the Babylonian conquest, and it was Herod then, Herod the Great, who built the second temple in Jerusalem. He also built palaces, not only in Jerusalem and in Caesarea, but also in places like Masada, above that high plateau, the Herodium, which is a, a fantastic human construction that we'll also see. Herod truly was a great 
builder and leader in the ancient world. However wicked and despicable a person he might have been in his character. <laughs> now, a few weeks ago, Jan and I were watching a performance of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar on PBS. And it struck me forcefully how intertwined Roman history is with New Testament history that we read about in the Gospels. For example, most of us probably are familiar with Mark Antony in Shakespeare's uh, Julius Caesar. Remember, it was Mark Antony who gives that wonderful funeral oration. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. And then he turns the crowd's emotions against the conspirators who were responsible for Caesar's assassination so that they seek revenge against them. Now, Mark Antony was aligned or allied with Octavian, um, who was his uh, ally against the conspirators who murdered Caesar. Now, Octavian later himself became Caesar or the Roman emperor. It was this same Mark Antony that is famous for his collaboration with the fabulous queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. So Mark Antony and Cleopatra were uh, allies and friends. And uh, you wonder, well, what connection does this have with the New Testament? Well, in 42 BC, Mark Antony appointed Herod to be the Tetrarch of Galilee. So it was this same Mark Antony who was responsible for putting Herod the Great into power. A tetrarch is someone who rules one-fourth of a region. And uh, Mark Antony gave to Herod the Tetrarchy of Galilee. Two years later, the Roman Senate declared Herod to be the king of the Jews. That is to say, all of uh, the Judean area. Uh, and so he became the Jewish king at that time. When Octavian became Caesar, he took on the name Augustus, and so became Augustus Caesar. And this, you remember, is the emperor whom Luke says issued a decree that all the world should be taxed, that sent Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. So these people connect intimately with the gospel story. It was under Herod the Great's reign that Jesus was born, probably around 5 or 6 BC. Now you may wonder how he managed to be born before Christ, uh, but that's obviously due to a, a calculation error in our calendars. It was this Herod, Herod the Great, who built Caesarea Maritima that we saw today, that Matthew says was responsible for the slaughter of the infant uh, boys in the area of Bethlehem. And we know from extra-biblical sources that Herod was uh, guilty of many brutal acts. He was responsible, for example, for killing his own wife, and he killed two of his sons as well. So what Matthew reports about Bethlehem certainly wouldn't have been out of character for a man like Herod the Great. Bethlehem was at that time a small village, and so probably the number of boys that were killed wouldn't have been in excess of around 20. Now, Herod died in 4 BC. 
So shortly after Jesus was born, Herod passed away in 4 BC. And Josephus, the Jewish historian who was uh, initially against the Romans but then went over to the Roman side and wrote a, a history of the Jews, uh, comments on Herod's the de great's death in this way. This is a reading from his Antiquities. Now Herod's distemper greatly increased upon him after a severe manner, and this by God's judgment upon him for his sins. For a fire glowed in him slowly, which did not so much appear to the touch outwardly as it augmented his pains inwardly. For it brought upon him a vehement appetite to eating, which he could not avoid to supply with one sort of food or other. His entrails were also exulcerated, uh, uh, and the chief violence of his pain lay on his colon. An aqueous and transparent liquor had also settled itself about his feet, and in a like manner it afflicted him at the bottom of his belly. Nay, further, his private member was putrefied and produced worms, and when he sat upright, he had difficulty breathing, which was very loathsome on account of the stench of his breath and the quickness of its returns. He had also convulsions in all parts of his body, which increased his strength to an insufferable degree. It was said by those who were endued with wisdom to foretell such things that God inflicted this punishment on the king on account of his great impiety. So when Herod died, uh, Josephus reports that he wanted to have genuine mourning at the time of his funeral, not just fake lamentation, uh, uh, an artifice uh, that would be expected at a funeral. Problem is, Herod was so hated that he knew no one would really lament or mourn to see him pass away. But Josephus said Herod had a plan to take care of that. What was the plan? Well, this is what Josephus reports. He commanded that all the principal men of the entire Jewish nation, wherever they lived, should be called to him. Accordingly, a great number came, because the whole nation was called. And all men heard of this call, and death was the penalty of such as should despise the epistles that were sent to call them. And now the king was in a wild rage against them all. And when they were come, he ordered them all to be shut up in the hippodrome and sent for his sister Salome and her husband Alexis. And he spoke thus to them, I shall die in a little time, so great are my pains. But what principally troubles me is this, that I shall die without being lamented and without such mourning as men usually expected a king's death. But, he said, he had a plan such that if they do not refuse him their consent in what he desires, he said he shall have a great mourning at his funeral, and such as never had any king before him. For then the whole nation would mourn from their very soul, which would otherwise be done in sport and mockery only. He desired, therefore, that as soon as they had seen that he had given up the ghost, they shall place soldiers round the hippodrome while they do not yet know that he is dead, and shall give orders to have those that are in custody shot with their arrows, 
And this slaughter of them all will cause that he shall have the honor of, of a memorial mourning at his funeral. So this was Herod's plan to have genuine lamentation and mourning at his funeral. Namely, he was going to kill all the principal men of Judaism, and the genuine lament and mourning for them would take place at the time of his funeral so that there would be real lamentation when he died. I mean, this is how perverse this madman was. Fortunately, uh, Salome and Alexis had the good sense not to carry out those executions. Well, after Herod the Great died, his youngest son, uh, Herod Antipas, was given the Tetrarchy of Galilee. So that was around 4 BC that Antipas, Herod Antipas, his youngest son, uh, became the Tetrarch in Galilee. And this is the Herod, Herod Antipas, who was in power during the time of Jesus' ministry. It was this Herod, Herod Antipas, who was responsible for the execution of John the Baptist. And again, this is an event that is not simply recorded in the New Testament. Josephus talks about John the Baptist. Did you know that? He refers to John the Baptist and tells of how Herod Antipas had him executed. Here's what Josephus says. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly, as a punishment of what he did against John, who was called the Baptist. For he was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Now when many others came in crowds about him, for they were very greatly moved by hearing his words, Herod, who feared lest the general influence John had over the people, might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late. Accordingly, he was sent as a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, which was a castle on the frontier on the border of uh, Israel, and was there put to death. So according to Josephus, Herod Antipas had John put away lest he lead some sort of rebellion uh, against the uh, Jewish and Roman leaders at that time. It was also this Antipas who was in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover when Jesus was handed over to the Romans. And Pilate, knowing that the Tetrarch of Galilee was in Jerusalem for the Passover and realizing Jesus was Galilean, says, send him to Herod. And so it was this Herod, Herod Antipas, who heard Jesus uh, in his uh, arrest and then sent him back to Pilate who finally condemned him to the cross. Now you might ask, well, why was he sent to Pilate? Well, you see, there wasn't any Jewish leader over Judea during Jesus' ministry. Herod, or Antipas, was the Tetrarch over Galilee, but um, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, uh, had decided to put Roman officials in charge of Judea. 
So he appointed a Roman prefect to be over Judea rather than a Jewish leader. Now, Augustus died in A.D. 14, 14 years uh, after Christ, uh, A.D. 14, and his stepson, Tiberius, then became Caesar, and he reigned until A.D. 37. So from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37, that's throughout the ministry of Jesus, it was Tiberius who was the Caesar, and of course we are right now in the city of Tiberius, which Herod Antipas built and named Tiberius uh, in honor of this emperor. Now Pontius Pilate was the fifth prefect of the Judean area. And as we saw at Caesarea today, uh, although Pilate is referred to in extra-biblical literary sources, until 1961, there was no physical evidence for the existence of Pontius Pilate. And then in 1961, in that theater at Caesarea Maritima, in which we sat today, they found this limestone block with an inscription on it from, of, of Pontius Pilatus, who is the Praefectus Judaei, that is to say, the prefect of Judea. And so it was clear physical evidence of Pilate's being the prefect during that time, and Caesarea was his capital city. Philo, the Alexandrian Jewish philosopher and exegete, who was also a first century writer, describes Pilate's character in the following words. Philo says that Pilate had a vindictiveness and a furious temper. He says he was naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. Philo writes of his conduct as the governor of Judea as filled with, and I quote, briberies, insults, robberies, outrages and wanton injuries, executions without trial, constantly repeated, the ceaseless and supremely grievous cruelty. So Pilate was a, a ruthless uh, ruler over Judea. Well, in the year uh, AD 39, Herod Antipas was displaced uh, by the, his stepson, or ne nephew rather, by his nephew and the grandson of Herod the Great, and this was Herod Agrippa I. There are actually two Herod Agrippas mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, and Herod Agrippa I uh, was the one who deposed Herod Antipas and sent Antipas packing uh, into exile. And he is the first of the Herod Agrippas that's mentioned in the book of Acts. He ruled over Judea and Samaria for just three years between AD 41 and AD 44. AD 41 to 44, the period that is described in the book of Acts. It was this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, that was responsible for the martyrdom of James, the son of Zebedee. Remember the two sons of Zebedee, James and John the fisherman, who fished this lake of Galilee out here? It was Herod Agrippa I that had James, the son of Zebedee, arrested and executed. He was also responsible for the arrest of Peter, uh, who then was miraculously delivered from prison. And he died, that is to say, Herod Agrippa I died in Caesarea Maritima in A.D. 44. 
the very city that we were in this morning. In fact, it was in the very theater in which we sat that Herod Agrippa I was struck down. And this is described in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. This is what Luke writes in the book of Acts chapter 12. Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. And on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now notice, Luke doesn't say he died and was eaten by worms. He's not talking here about maggots that consumed the course. He was eaten by worms and died. In other words, he was afflicted with some kind of parasite from which he died. And Josephus expands on this same event. This is what Josephus writes uh, about what happened to Herod Agrippa I. On the second day of the shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon it. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and one from another, that he was a god. And upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a rope over his head, and immediately he understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings and fell into the deepest sorrows. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in the most violent manner. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a little time. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age. So exactly as the book of Acts describes, Josephus gives us a narrative of how he was struck down in the theater at Caesarea Maritima, where we sat, uh, and was carried off and then shortly died thereafter. Several years after Herod Agrippa uh, died, then his son, who was Herod Agrippa II, uh, came to power. And Herod Agrippa II um, was the ruler, the Jewish ruler, who was in power when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and then imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. That was between A.D. 57 and A.D. 59. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. He was taken down to the coast and put in prison in Caesarea and remained there for two years. And Agrippa II came down to Caesarea with his sister, not his wife, it was his sister, Bernice, with whom he lived in an incestuous relation. They came down to Caesarea, and the Roman governor Festus gave Paul an audience with this king, with Agrippa II. And it was with Agrippa II that Paul had this famous exchange. Uh, you can just imagine Paul speaking to Festus, the Roman governor, who thinks he's mad, 
And then King Agrippa and his sister. And, and Paul says to Festus, the king, that is Agrippa, he's referring to the king, but not Festus. He says, the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. And then he turns to King Agrippa, and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do, addressing him directly. And Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? I mean, this is just wild, this exchange between Paul and Agrippa II. And Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to my voice may become what I am, except for these chains. What a, what a meeting between Paul and Agrippa II. Well, that's not the end of the story of Caesarea, uh, not at all. In AD 66, AD 66, this is after the book of Acts closes, a massacre of the Jews occurred in Caesarea, Maritima, and the local synagogue was desecrated. And this sparked the disastrous Jewish revolt that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and finally in the tragedy of Masada, which we'll see later on in the week. So the Jewish revolt actually began in Caesarea, where we were today. Herod Agrippa II was the king at the time of the revolt, but he sided with the Romans, and therefore he managed to survive the Roman crushing of the Jewish revolt. Well, a second Jewish revolt occurred in the year 132. Uh, this is often called the Bar Kokhba revolt because Simon Bar Kokhba led this revolt against the Romans. And this one ended in the same way with the destruction of Jerusalem and the expulsion of the Jews. And thereafter, Caesarea became an important center of early Christianity in Palestine. Christianity has a long and noble history in Caesarea. You remember, according to the book of Acts, Christianity was first introduced into Caesarea by Peter's preaching to the household of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And this was sometime uh, shortly after Paul's conversion in the mid-30s. Uh, but it even preceded Paul's outreach to the Gentiles. By the time of the third century, uh, Christianity had become firmly entrenched in Caesarea. The great Christian uh, philosopher and apologist, Oregon, wrote and taught and lived in Caesarea Maritima. His dates are 185 to 254. And Oregon is one of the earliest and greatest Christian philosophers and apologists. He's the man who wrote against Celsus who was the early heathen or pagan critic of Christianity. Moreover, the famous church historian Eusebius also lived in Caesarea. Eusebius was the bishop of Caesarea between 315 and 318. And the theological school that was centered in Caesarea uh, had a fantastic reputation. It, it had the most extensive theological library of the time. Over 30,000 manuscripts uh, were held 
at Caesarea. And such notable church fathers as Gregory Nazianzus, Basil the Great, and Jerome came and studied in Caesarea. Also, the Caesarean family of texts comes from this city and is one of the most important witnesses to the original text of the New Testament. There are various families of manuscripts, and the Caesarean text is one of the most reliable and earliest of the Greek text that is used for reconstructing the New Testament. So this is a city of incredible importance to early Christian church history. Let me just say something more about Oregon's connection with Caesarea, because I find this very inspirational personally as a Christian philosopher. Oregon was a uh, prominent lay teacher. He was a layman in Alexandria in Egypt. But about the year 230, he traveled to Caesarea here in Palestine, and uh, while visiting here, he was welcomed by the local Christian believers, and the local bishop here in Caesarea ordained Oregon as a priest. Well, his own bishop back in Alexandria, Demetrius, was very unhappy about Oregon's being ordained by a bishop in another town to the priesthood, and so he banished Oregon from Alexandria. And so in the year 231, Oregon left Alexandria and made his permanent home from then on in Caesarea. Now, in the year 249, the Roman emperor, Decius, began the first systematic persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire. Sure, there had always been local outbreaks of persecution, but under Decius, this was the first systematic attempt by the Roman Empire to eradicate Christianity entirely from the Roman Empire. And Eusebius tells of how Oregon, who by that time was 66 years old, he was an old man, he's 66 years old, he was arrested by the Roman authorities, he was tortured, he was pilloried, he was fastened hand and foot in the blocks for days, and yet without yielding, he never denied Christ. He held to his faith unswervingly, despite being tortured. And when I think of that, I think, how many Christian philosophers today could make a claim like that? It would be just amazing. Oregon survived his tortures, but he died just three years later due to the injuries that he had sustained in being tortured for Christ. In the year 303, the Roman Emperor Diocletian began the great persecution of the Christians in the Roman Empire. This was the most dreadful persecution that had ever been launched to exterminate Christian belief from the Roman Empire. And Eusebius wrote an account of the Diocletian persecution entitled The Martyrs of Palestine, which I recently read in my devotional reading uh, in the morning. And he describes the horrible atrocities that were committed throughout the Roman Empire, but especially in Caesarea against the Christians. And I want to read you a little bit of Eusebius's account of what happened in Caesarea. As it was an ancient custom to furnish the spectators more splendid shows when the emperors were present than at other times, it was necessary at this time, as the emperor was giving the exhibition, to add to the shows something more wonderful. 
And what should this be? He says, a witness of our doctrine, that is a Christian, was brought into the midst and endured the contest for the true and only religion. This was Agapius, who was with Thecla the second to be thrown to the wild beasts for food. He had also three times and more marched with malefactors from the prison to the arena, and every time after threats from the judge had been reserved for other conflicts. But the emperor being present, he was brought out at this time as if he had been appropriately reserved for this occasion until the very word of the Savior should be fulfilled in him, which through divine knowledge he declared to his disciples that they should be brought before kings on account of their testimony unto him. He was taken into the midst of the arena with a certain malefactor who they said was charged with the murder of his master. But this murderer of, of his master, when he had been cast to the wild beasts, was deemed worthy of compassion and humanity, almost like Barabbas in the time of our Savior. And the whole theater resounded with cries and shouts of approval because the murderer was humanely saved by the emperor and deemed worthy of honor and freedom. But the athlete of religion, they often refer to these people who endure torture as athletes, uh, contestants, the athlete of religion was first summoned by the tyrant and promised liberty if he would deny his profession. But he testified with a loud voice that not for any fault, but for the religion of the creator of the universe, he would readily and with pleasure endure whatever might be inflicted upon him. Having said this, he joined the deed to the word and rushed to meet a bear which had been let loose against him surrendering himself most cheerfully to be devoured by him. After this, as he still breathed, he was cast into prison, and living yet one more day, stones were bound to his feet, and he was drowned in the depths of the sea. Such was the martyrdom of Agapius. Eusebius goes on, again in Caesarea, when the persecution had continued to the fifth year, on the very Lord's day of our resurrection, on Easter, Theodosia, a virgin from Tyre, a faithful and sedate maiden, not yet 18 years of age, not yet 18 years of age, went up to certain prisoners who were confessing the kingdom of Christ and sitting before the judgment seat and saluted them, as is probable, and besought them to remember her when they came before the Lord. Thereupon, as if she had committed a profane and impious act, the soldiers seized her and led her to the governor. And he immediately, like a madman and a wild beast in his anger, tortured her with dreadful and most terrible torments in her sides and breasts, even to the very bones. And as she still breathed, and withal stood with a joyful and beaming countenance, he ordered her thrown into the waves of the sea. Then passing from her to the other confessors, he condemned all of them to the copper mines in Fino in Palestine. And these horrible persecutions endured for a decade, for 10 years, until 312, when the new emperors, uh, Constantine and Licinius, 
uh, issued their edict of toleration. When Constantine and his colleague Licinius came to the emperorship, they promulgated an edict of toleration. And it is marvelous to read this edict that Constantine and his colleague promulgated. It sounds so modern in its espousal of religious toleration for not just Christianity, but all faiths in the Roman Empire. And let me read to you from this edict of toleration that they promulgated in 312. Quote, We thought it fit to commend these things most fully to your care that you may know that we have given to those Christians free and unrestricted opportunity of religious worship. When you see that this has been granted to them by us, you will know that we have also conceded to other religions the right of open and free observance of their worship for the sake of the peace of our times, that each one may have the free opportunity to worship as he pleases. This regulation is made so that we may not seem to detract from any dignity or any religion. And so at last, religious toleration came to the Roman world, and uh, peace was restored to the Christian faith. The martyrdom was ended. But when we walked around Caesarea, I hope now as you look back on it, you realize uh, we were walking on sacred ground. This was ground that had been hallowed by the blood of the martyrs that were killed there and drowned in the sea that, that we looked into. Uh, to use Tertullian's very famous phrase, uh, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Neither the Jewish rulers that opposed Christianity nor the Roman emperors or, or emperors or local officials could extinguish uh, this faith. And so I hope that from now on, when you read the New Testament and you think of Herod the Great, of Pontius Pilate, of Paul, when you think of Caesarea and what happened there, you'll remember the faithful martyrs and their testimony to Christ that, that they endured even unto death and that this will give you a, a, a new appreciation for what you read and what we've experienced today. Well, those were the reflections that I wanted to share with you. Uh, we'll now have a little break, and those who want to stick around and uh, talk uh, are, are happy to, or welcome to do so. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm still here walking out in the countryside 40-odd minutes later or whatever it is. Uh, no, of course I'm not. No, I'm just continuing speaking as I was before. And the power of editing is giving that illusion. Oh, well, enough of that nonsense. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. Don't forget, next week we should be speaking all being well. All being well. Please let all things be well to Vanessa Bailey and then getting back into the groove of those fortnightly podcasts. So that really is it for today. I am now stepping back towards the house of sickness. No, actually, things are, things are okay now, really. And to edit all this up and post it. In the meantime, I wish you all well, and thank you, those of you who've uh, communicated with me recently for your messages. It's great to hear from people. And again, just a quick message to people who support the show. Thanks very much indeed for your continued support of The Mind Renewed. I'll speak to you next week, and in the meantime, you have been listening to Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com, and I very much look forward to speaking to you next week. Bye for now.